So one of the things that I um, have said before, and I'll say again, that I love about our church is how we are so kingdom-minded, and how, um, although we care for and love one another here, but we strive to be that in our community, and pretty much around the world. And I, I, I value that deeply. I value that we value the lives of others outside of this building. And that means that when others go through tragedy and when others are hurt, that we um, experience that pain with them because they, those are our brothers and our sisters. And if you've been around at all this week, you know that something horrific happened um, this week to some of our brothers and sisters. Um, a young man who needs our prayers um, committed a her- heinous crime, a horrific act, and he killed some of our brothers and sisters while they were in church. And we as a body want to acknowledge that pain and that suffering that they are going through, and we want to stand in unity with those families and those victims. And we even want to stand for the young man who committed this crime because he absolutely needs Jesus. He absolutely needs Jesus. He needs the love and forgiveness of God in his life. He may not know it, but he does. And we're called, and we've learned that we are called to pray for our enemies. And um, we are mourning, and we are grieved by what happened. We are mourning with those who are mourning and the victims and, and everyone who has to deal with the aftermath of this horrific act that happened. And so I want to invite you as a body of kingdom-loving, believing people as a body of people who believes that we can shine light in the darkness and we can bring love into a place of hate, I invite you to stand with me now because we're going to pray. We're going to pray for the victims and we're going to pray for their families and we're going to pray for this young man who did this horrible thing. We're going to pray that God's healing work would begin. But first, I invite you all into just a moment of silence so that you can recognize this in your own way. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I invite you, and you can see it on the screen, to, to voice aloud the response, because this is our way of coming together. Churches all over the country are doing this as, a, as, a, as a, just a small token of solidarity and unity um, with our brothers and sisters who um, have fallen and for those that they left behind. We stand before you today, O oh Lord, hearts broken, eyes weeping, heads spinning, Our brothers and sisters have died. They gathered and prayed, and then they were no more. The prayer-soaked walls of the church are spattered with blood. The enemy at the table turned on them in violence while they were turning to you in prayer. Say it with me. We stand with our sisters. We stand with our brothers. We stand with their families. We stand to bear their burden in Jesus' name. We cry out to you, O Lord, our hearts breaking, eyes weeping, heads spinning. The violence in our streets has come into your house. The hatred in our cities has crept into your sanctuary. The brokenness in our lives has broken into your temple. The dividing wall of hostility has crushed our brothers and sisters. We cry out to you, may your kingdom come. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. We cry out for our sisters. 
We cry out for our brothers. We cry out for their families. We cry out for peace in Jesus' name. We pray to you today, O oh Lord, our hearts breaking, eyes weeping, souls stirring. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray to the God of all comfort to comfort our brothers and sisters in their mourning. We pray that you would bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. We pray that you would give them the oil of joy instead of mourning. We pray that you would give them a garment of praise in place of a spirit of despair. We pray for our sisters. We pray for our brothers. We pray for their families. We pray for their comfort in Jesus' name. We declare together, O oh Lord, with hearts breaking, eyes weeping, and souls stirring, we will continue to stand and cry and weep with our brothers and sisters. We will continue to make a place of peace to even the enemies at our table. We will continue to open our doors and our hearts to those who enter them. We will continue to seek to forgive as we have been forgiven. We will continue to love in Jesus' name because you taught us that love conquers all. We declare our love for you, our sisters. We declare our love for you, our brothers. We declare our love for you, their families. We declare our love as one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We declare they do not grieve alone today. Amen. 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 Uh, you can be seated. My name is Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills, and it's really good to see all of you. Well, social media has got a lot of downsides, but one upside is that word can spread very quickly. This was a liturgy that was uh, uh, created uh, in Portland uh, the day of the tragedy or the evening after the tragedy and was put up on social media and through Twitter and other venues, it just got spread out. And there are uh, literally thousands of churches across America who are saying the same liturgy. And uh, there's just something beautiful about standing in solidarity together um, and, and hurting together and praying together, uh, the, the same prayer of the same Lord. Um, and keep praying for them and trusting that in a way that only God can do. He can bring redemptive value out of this. Turn that to a kingdom advantage. Whatever that might look like, just pray that God be present there. All right. It's good to see my old good friend, Dean Zimmerman. I think I saw you over here. Where are you, Dean? I saw you, Dean. Yes. Hi, hey, Dean. Oh, you're such a cute guy. Okay, this guy, he's, uh, I think you're still the head of the philosophy department at Rutgers. Uh, yeah, one of the best philosophical minds on the planet, uh, and um, we've been to conferences together. We've had a lot of good talks about uh, the truth value of future tense propositions and how will and will not relate to might and might not and the ontological import of the whole thing, and it, we've had some fun times, so it's good to see you here with your class and colleagues and stuff like that. So we're in this series on twisted scripture, looking at scriptures that we think have gotten twisted in some ways. Um, this morning's text comes out of Matthew chapter 26. It is one that I think is extremely important and has been twisted in some uh, pretty negative ways. Sometimes the twisting is sort of innocuous, sometimes it's lethal, and this is one of those that has been to some degree lethal. Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. This jar of perfume uh, is... It would have cost about a year's wages for an average worker in Palestine. It was very expensive stuff. 
And she poured this ointment on Jesus' head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. It seems to me to be a rather reasonable complaint. What's more important, feeding people or smelling good? There was a period of my life where I was really bothered by this whole thing because I found myself siding with the disciples against Jesus, and that's never a good spot to be in. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Uh, he goes on to say that she's anointed me for burial, and that whenever the good news is preached, she'll be remembered. Um, and I'm leaving that part off, and I'm even leaving out the explanation as to uh, you know, the, the full scope of, of what the, the, the legitimacy of the disciples' complaint, because I want to zero in on just the problematic passage. What does Jesus mean when he says, the poor you have with you always? What is the meaning of that? So pray with me here just for a moment. Father, I thank you for your presence being here in the worship service and what's already gone on this weekend. I thank you, God, for all the folks that have gathered here today. And I pray that, that uh, for them and for our parishioners, all who will be hearing this later on, you open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to impact us, to tear down strongholds, to root out lies, to set captives free, to build your kingdom in our lives and through our lives. And let this word, Lord God, just accomplish all that you intend, but we trust your spirit to do that, not, not the authority of human words. So we surrender this over to you and say, have your way in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So this passage has been twisted in some serious ways. It's sometimes taken to mean that uh, Jesus is saying that there will always be poor people and there's not much you can do about that. No matter what you do, there's going to be poor people. So spend your money on me. And it's led some to believe that the church... It's supposed to focus on eternal matters, not temporal matters. We should save souls, not try to fix the world and alleviate poverty. Because after all, what difference does it make whether you're well-fed, but don't go to heaven? And the church should focus on spiritual matters, on the soul, and not try to alleviate all the issues that deal with the body. Or some have said that the church, uh, as this lady illustrates, the church's job is to be involved in extravagant worship. It's far more important to worship Jesus than it is to try to alleviate poverty because there will always be poor people. I have heard of one pastor who had uh, explicitly appealed to this verse as his proof text to justify spending almost a million dollars on this nice, God-glorifying church steeple uh, when just a little ways away from the church there was this, an impoverished neighborhood where there were people who were squatters in abandoned buildings and homeless folks. Uh, and his justification was, look, you all, no matter what we do, there's going to be more poor people. And our job is to glorify Jesus, and a tall, tall church steeple would, would do that. Now, it, it, I don't think it's really a coincidence that most of the folks who give this interpretation of this passage are not among the poor. I'm just thinking. Um, most of the folks who give this interpretation don't know what it's like to be focused on having to worry about how you're going to get food on the table tonight for your kids, or how are you going to be able to get new shoes, or any shoes for Johnny who's outgrowing his old shoes, or how are you going to keep the heat on during the winter, or they don't have to worry about, they don't know what it's like firsthand to worry about uh, your kids getting shot, whether by a gang member or a police or a racist. And so they may not realize, the folks who give this twisted interpretation may not realize that 
if, if you're living your life focused on trying to keep your kids alive, you don't have a whole lot of emotional or mental space in your life to worry or wonder about or be curious about a gospel that only becomes relevant once they're dead. I also don't think it's a coincidence that the, the folks who give this interpretation um, are not among the poor in that it's a pretty convenient interpretation to have. Because uh, it means that if you're well-to-do, you don't have to have any kind of guilt about feeling kind of responsibility about helping the poor. Uh, no, they're always going to be there. And so you're off the hook. And so now you can extravagantly spend your money on your church or anything you want. So the thinking can go a little bit like this. Well, gosh, it's really too bad that, you know, a mile away we've got these poor folks squatting in these abandoned, condemned buildings. Uh, that's too bad. It's, it's, it really breaks our heart to see that. But there's not much we can do about that. Um, you know, the, the, Jesus himself said the poor will always be with us, and we try to do our part. We offer, you know, we, we, we open the door for them to go to heaven by giving them some tracks now and then. We do our part. We do our part. On Christmas, some folks even go down there and give out Ken and Barbie dolls because they can't afford Christmas presents. So we do our part, but our job is to extravagantly worship Jesus. And so we're, we're going to, you know, build this wonderful million-dollar steeple. It'll be so God-glorifying. We'll have a neon cross that blinks on top of the whole thing so everyone in the city can see the cross and underneath we can just have these these uh, this a title rotating around the whole steeple like they do on wall street and we'll say god bless america and have your best life now it will be so glorifying to god that's the kind of thing that can happen with this kind of twisted interpretation i kind of think that's not what jesus is getting at here um so what does this passage mean what does this we, we have we have to wrestle with it Whenever you're dealing with any passage of Scripture, whether it's problematic or not, the first question is to put it in the, the first task is to put it in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, read the, the Scripture as one word, and every part of that word has got to cohere with and derive meaning from every other part. In that light, it's significant that caring for the poor and God's heart for the poor is among one of the most dominant themes throughout all of Scripture. From beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, God's heart for the outcast, for the poor, for the broken, uh, is all over the place. And God's call on God's people to minister to them is all over the place. It's a dominant theme. And warnings against greed are all over the place. I I read one source, I haven't personally counted this, but this one source said that there's over 3,000 verses that address or reflect God's heart for the poor and the call of God's people to minister to the poor and that war against greed and things of that sort. And it's just really bad exegesis to take one verse that maybe you don't understand, but maybe you think you do, and but then to overturn a whole dominant motif of Scripture on the basis of that one verse because it's convenient for you to do so. That's not good exegesis. It's also very important then to look at the immediate context of every passage. You're dealing with any, any, interpreting any passage of, of Scripture, any text, put it in its context. Because as I've taught around here a number of times, a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And not only that, but you can prove anything with a proof text on the, uh, you can prove anything on a pretext of a proof text without a context. So a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, and you can prove anything uh, with a pretext of a proof text without a context. You got that. In other words, interpret the Bible holistically. Uh, read it in context. It's like I could prove to you that God is a meanie who doesn't care about the, the, the innocent and doesn't care about injustice because it says in Job 16 that God, uh, God blinds the judges so they do not judge justly and, and he does not hear the prayers of the innocent. 
That's what it says right in Job 16. Now, that's coming out of the mouth of a very angry man who's kind of screwed up in his head because he's in all this pain and all that. But see, if you take, you take it out of context, you can prove anything. So we've got to put it in context. Here's what's interesting about this context. This is all taking place at the home of Simon, a leper. What's interesting about that is a leper, uh, well, lepers were, were considered ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament law and in first century culture. They're unclean. You're not supposed to touch them. You're not supposed to be in close proximity to them. You don't go and hang out in their house. These folks aren't supposed to be here, but they are. It's been, a party's being hosted by Simon the leper. Another interesting thing is this lady. This is a very sexist culture, and women weren't invited, invited to men's gatherings. Uh, that's why whenever you find Jesus talking with the Pharisees, it's all men. Except in the case when a woman crashes the party, like in Luke 7, and she also has this alabaster jar of perfume and, and uh, anoints Jesus' feet with it. But this is an all-men thing. Women aren't supposed to be there. In fact, in first-century Jewish culture, it was considered improper for a man to interact with, to converse with a woman who wasn't her, her husband, or her, 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 who wasn't his wife. <laughs> and, and it was improper for a woman to talk with a man who wasn't her husband. And it certainly was improper to have any physical contact. Well, this lady barges into this men's group and then begins to anoint Jesus' head with this expensive perfume, which would involve some touching and maybe even some caressing. Decent Jewish folks would find this to be offensive. This isn't supposed to be how it goes down. It would be especially scandalous if this lady is, as some scholars contend, a prostitute. Uh, we know that uh, this jar of perfume, being, no peasant could afford this. It's a year's wages. Peasants didn't have this. Um, the only people who had this kind of perfume were very, very wealthy people and prostitutes. And for the prostitutes, it was a tool of the trade. It was a way of advertising. In a culture, before they had invented toothpaste or toilet paper or deodorant, smelling good was a real turn-on. So uh, uh, they, they would have this. Uh, we know that in Luke 7, when the lady burst the busts in on the guy's party, crashes the guy's party, uh, and starts anointing Jesus' feet. Luke says that she was a sinner, which was an idiomatic way of saying she was a prostitute. And so it's possible, and maybe even likely, that this lady was a prostitute. We do know that uh, whatever she was, she had been forgiven much. Uh, she came into this party with gratitude and love. The depth of her love is revealed by the depth of her sacrifice, and here she's taking for sure the most expensive thing she owns, and she's pouring it out on Jesus' head. And so if she was a prostitute, this would be extremely scandalous. So this is, this is a very unusual gathering here in the home of a leper where a lady busts in, and it would be a scandal. The thing is, we find this happening all the time with Jesus throughout the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels tell us that he would regularly recline at the table. And this is just a first century party. He would go to gatherings and parties where there were prostitutes and tax collectors. These folks wanted to hang out with him. The two most judged groups in first century Judaism, prostitutes and tax collectors, and Jesus hung out with them, and they wanted to hang out with Jesus. And throughout his ministry, Jesus, he, he, he treats women with respect and dignity. He interacts with them. That's a no-no. And he treats Samaritans, despised Samaritans, uh, with respect, and even holds them up in some of his stories as, as, as prime examples of good stuff, and even places them over some, some respected Jewish leaders. That's scandalous in, in, in Jewish culture. Um, he, he even talks with Gentiles. That was considered questionable. But then he even talks with Romans, these oppressors. 
people oppressing land. And then he even talks with Roman soldiers and even captains. In fact, he praises a Roman centurion who is the leader of a whole platoon and, and says he has greater faith than anything he's found in Israel. This is what ticks people off. This is what offends people. The righteous are scandalized by this. He's breaking all the rules. Everywhere he goes, he does this. He allows unclean people to touch him, and he touches unclean people. He's a lawbreaker. You're not supposed to do that. But see, Jesus was always just a little bit unconventional. Jesus systematically ignored the first century Jewish social game of categories and hierarchies and judgments. Now, every culture's got their game, their social game of categories and hierarchies and judgments. It's a construct that, that we have to rate people and rank people and file people and categorize people. It's what tells any particular culture who's in and who's out, who's righteous, who's not righteous, who's pretty, who's not pretty, who's worth paying attention to, who's worth not paying attention to, who's helpful, who's unhelpful. It's a, it's a ranking system, a social game of categories and hierarchies and judgments. And Jesus systematically collapses all that. He just loves with this indiscriminate love. He loves like the Father loves, and He taught us the Father loves like the sun shines and the rain falls. The sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to fall on, it just does what it does. And the rain doesn't pick and fall who it's going to fall on, it just does what it does. So also, Jesus doesn't pick and choose who He's going to love. He just, lo- he just is who He is, He loves. He loves indiscriminatingly. Apart from whatever category society may put you in, whatever hierarchy they may rank you in, whatever judgment they may have against you, Jesus just loves. And see, because of that, uh, well, the folks who were most attracted to him were the ones who had lost at the social game. The ones who were filed in the wrong category. Category says you belong, or the, the social system says you belong in this category, not that category. It's the category of the unacceptable and the disrespectful. And you're at the bottom of the hierarchy of social respect, and these are the, among the most judged people in the culture. Those are the ones who are hungry for Jesus because they've lost at the social game. And so these are the ones that are open to playing a new kind of a game, the game that Jesus is offering. It's the kingdom of God game. It's the game of indiscriminating love. And in this game, you don't look at people or treat people according to categories and hierarchies and judgments. In fact, this game abolishes all of that. This game does away with the categories and the, the, the judgments. And uh, so the, the, the winners at the social game, the, one who, the ones who are at the top of the hierarchy, and they're the moral guardians of the social game. They fit into all the right categories at the top of the hierarchies, and they're the ones who do the judging. Well, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. No, they benefit from the system that he's deconstructing, and so uh, they, they condemn Jesus. But the losers at the social game, the ones who can't win at that, well, they've got nothing to lose, and so they're interested in what Jesus has to offer. A new kind of game, the kingdom of God game, the game of indiscriminate love. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the broken, blessed are those who are weak, blessed are the persecuted, persecuted, the marginalized, blessed are those who are most judged. Why? Because what he's saying there basically is, blessed are you when you don't fit into society's categories. Blessed are you when, when, when you don't win at society's games. Blessed are you when you're at the bottom of the, the, the social respect hierarchy and the economic hierarchy and the fame hierarchy. And, and, and blessed are you when you are among the most judged of the world because... Because the very fact that you're losers means that you are open to what, to what the great physician has to offer. You would know on some level that you are sick. You don't win at the world's game. And so these are the folks that hang around with Jesus. So we always find throughout the Gospels, it says that 
It, it was, it, it was the, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the outcasts and the marginalized and the broken and the poor. These are the kind of folks, the diseased, the unclean, these are the kind of folks that gravitated towards Jesus. Having lost at the social game of the categories and hierarchies and judgments, they were open for a game that, the, the game that Jesus plays, it not, only, it not only doesn't operate by those categories, it blows them apart. The game of the kingdom of God, the game of indiscriminate love, it bursts all the categories and levels all the hierarchies, and it cancels all the judgments. The, the game that Jesus plays, this indiscriminate love game, this kingdom of God game, it, it, violates, it goes beyond all the borders. It erases all the distinctions. blows apart all the hierarchies. It, it violates all the unjust taboos. In fact, the game that Jesus plays, this kingdom of God game, this, this indiscriminate love game, it completely abandons the win-lose categories and the inside-outside categories. And it completely abandons the, the, the hierarchy of economics and the hierarchy of social rank and the hierarchy of, of righteousness. And it completely abandons, cancels out all the judgments, praise God, because it's rooted in indiscriminate love, a love that does not choose, a love that has no off button, a love that does not uh, 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 put people in different kinds of categories and stuff. No, it just loves like God loves, like the sun shines, like the rain falls. And, and praise God. And this is why those who win at the world's games, those who benefit from it, they, they, they condemn Jesus. But those who are hungry, those who are broken, those who are the losers, they gravitate towards Jesus. And so what develops around Jesus is this very interesting, beautiful community of losers. A community of people who have lost at the world's game, but that's why they're now open to winning in the Jesus game. You see, they're hungry for this. So he tracks all the folks, the rejects that society just doesn't want much to do with. The losers at the, in the hierarchy. This is what we find in the early church, folks. Uh, Paul says this in, in Galatians 3. He says, in Christ, love this passage. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, they were still, they're still Jews and Gentiles, right? They're slave or free. Uh, people were still male or female. But what Paul is saying is that when you get your identity and life in Christ, all of those distinctions that the world invests so much significance in. Are you with this or are you with that? Where do you rank? What's your tag? What's your label? All those things are just, they're robbed of all their significance. Because when people find their life and identity in Christ, you find, you, you find there a fullness of life that none of the world's games can give. Even if you're a winner at the world's game, it doesn't give you this. When you come to Christ, he gives you a life, a fullness of life, a worth, a joy, that, that renders all the categories and hierarchies and judgments insignificant. they got nothing to offer you. Because everything you ever wanted, everything you ever really are hungry for, you find in Christ. And so the, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a community in which those things just that are so big in the world are, are just rendered null and void. They're, they're, they're just dead. The categories and the hierarchies and the judgments are dead. They are demolished. They're disqualified. They're destroyed. They're decimated. They're defeated. They've got no value any longer. And the only thing that matters is that we are one in Christ. That's our identity. That's our life. That's our tag. That's the only thing that really matters. And that's why the kingdom community is one. They're one because... The only thing that ever divides people are the stupid categories and hierarchies and judgments. 
There's a humanity here, but we say, oh no, you belong here in this category, not in that category. You're of this, not of that. You're, you're here on the hierarchy, and you're here on the hierarchy, and you're here on the hierarchy, and this is the judgment against you, and this is the judgment against you, and that's all the kind of crap that divides humanity. It's at the source of all wars, and all divisions, and all racism, and all nationalistic conflicts. It's, it's the source of everything. When those things are abolished, destroyed, defeated, decimated, disqualified, when those things are null and void, well then there's only the unity that's left, and the unity is found in Christ Jesus, King of kings, and Lord of all lords, praise God. He is our life, and He is our identity. And so what it means, folks, is that in the body of Christ, if we're a kingdom community, uh, it really, really has to be the case that it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it really doesn't matter whether you're white or black or Latino, Hispanic, Japanese, Asian, Russian, African. It doesn't matter whether you're American or Iraqi uh, or, or Puerto Rican. It doesn't matter at all. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if we really are authentic king of unity. Amen. Amen. If we're an authentic kingdom community... Uh, then the categories and hierarchies and judgments have been abolished, denuded of all significance. So, so whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're upper class or lower class, whether you're the president of the United States or you wash toilets for a living, doesn't matter because we're one in Jesus Christ. He's our life and he's our identity. And doesn't matter whether you're single or married, doesn't matter whether you're chubby or skinny, doesn't matter whether you're talented or got no talents whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't matter what your occupation might be. Uh, our identity and our life is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The categories have been abolished. We've been set free of that kind of thinking. We can love with an indiscriminate kind of love that never is qualified, that has no off button. We live in it as long as our heart is beating and we are breathing and we've got brain waves. Our job is to love the way Christ loves, indiscriminate love, the love that bursts categories, tears down the walls, removes all barriers. Praise God. That's what we are called to be. Everything else. And, and, Lord knows it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat or Tea Party or Wacko Party or Socialist or Communist. I don't care. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. He's the fullness of our life. And so, folks, what it means is we have to... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, the social game, this artificial fallen construct by which we categorize and rank and hierarchy and pass judgments, that is still alive and well in the world you may have noticed. And religion is simply that game on steroids, in Jesus' name, or in whatever name the religion's about. Uh, that's what religion does. And so it's very easy for that thinking to keep on cropping into our thinking, without even noticing it. It takes intentionality to be fighting off this demonic game. Um, and so we have to always be asking ourselves, are we receiving this indiscriminate love? Do, do we experience the indiscriminate love of God towards ourselves? Because you can't give what you don't got. Are we receiving this love, and are we loving like this? Do we see people outside of all categories and hierarchies and judgments? Um, do we unwittingly look up to some and down to others? Do we unwittingly think well of some and less of others, want to hang out with some but want to avoid others? Are there judgments in our mind towards those in the community and those outside the community? Do we rank in any way? And we have to pay attention to that. And always be allowing the indiscriminate love of God towards us to abolish the categories and collapse all the hierarchies and cancel all the judgments so that we can simply live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's our job. The categories are dead and demolished, defeated, disqualified, all of that. We have to keep them that way. We have to keep them that way. And this, folks, and if we do that, 
we will find ourselves gravitating towards, and people gravitating towards us, the same kind that gravitated towards Jesus. Those who are winning at the social game tend not to have an interest in opting out of the game because they're winning. But it's the people who are in the wrong categories at the bottom of the hierarchy and the most judged that are looking for a new game. And it's the game that has saved us, and it's the game that we have to offer others. And this, believe it or not, sets up the context in which we can now understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are, or when he said, the poor you will have with you always. Okay, first notice this. When Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always, he doesn't just say, there's always going to be poor people. Too bad, so sad, nothing you can do about it. In fact, in the passage just before this one, in Matthew 25, um, Jesus is talking about the judgment day, and there he says, that the sheep will be divided by the goats. Those who are coming into the kingdom and those who aren't will be discerned this way. And he identifies with the poor. He says, did you visit me when I was in prison? When I was naked, did you give me clothing? When I was hungry, did you give me food? When I was homeless, did you welcome me in? That's the criteria. So I'm thinking that how we treat the poor is pretty important for Jesus. And so folks, whatever he means when he says the poor will have with you always, I'm pretty sure he wasn't saying... The poor are always going to be around, too bad, so sad, can't do anything about it. No, that's... What he's saying here is simply this. If, 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 you're, if you have a kingdom community that is reflecting the indiscriminate love of God towards us, if, we, if it's a truly kingdom community that looks like Jesus, it will be the kind of community where the categories have been abolished and the hierarchies have been collapsed and the judgments have been canceled and therefore those who are in the wrong categories at the bottom of the hierarchies and the most judged are going to gravitate towards it. Those who are poor are going to gravitate towards this. Those who are losing in the world system, they're going to be hungry for the message that you have to give. So the poor will always be with you. In fact, that word with in Greek is meta. And it can mean it has a connotation of among you, a part of you. So he's saying, you will always be among the poor. The poor will be always among you. They'll be a part of you. This is, who, this is what the kingdom community is going to consist of. Um, and th- this is actually confirmed in this fact that m- many scholars argue that Jesus is referring back to Deuteronomy 15 with the statement, the poor you'll have with you always. And in Deuteronomy 15, this is where the Lord is talking about how he's going to, if, if the children of Israel will walk with him, he's going to bless them, and they'll have food, plenty, and, and they'll just be blessed in every way. And that, then he says, in this way, those who have less than they need will come to you, and you'll be able to share with them. I'm blessing you to be a blessing to others. And so he says in verse 11, since there will never cease be some in need on the earth, since the poor will always be on the earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The poor will always be there. But notice, Yahweh doesn't say, "Ah, what can you do about it then? No. Since there are always going to be poor people, do something about it. (laughs) Share what you have. I'm, I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. It means the exact opposite of what these folks who twisted uh, in, in this way mean. It means, no, we are called. God's people have always been called to minister to the poor, the outcasts, the lowly, the losers in the world's game. And that's what the people of God are called to do. And it's not just the economic poor, though it certainly includes them. No, it's, it, it's the poor, in, the losers in all the categories, in all the hierarchies, and the receivers of all the judgments. And so it, this gathering that Jesus is at is actually a beautiful manifestation of the kingdom. They're having themselves a church service here, and it's held in the wrong place, at the home of a leper. They're not supposed to be there. They're breaking a law, a bunch of lawbreakers. Uh, it's, a, it's a community of lawbreakers uh, hosted by a leper. And now you have this lady who wasn't invited coming in, possibly a prostitute. 
Uh, and, and she's extravagantly worshiping Jesus, so it's a party that's hosted in the home of a leper, and unclean, you're not supposed to be around him, and now the worship leader and the worship teacher is this prostitute, wonderful. Uh, and this is the kind of, see, this is one, this is one giant category-busting, hierarchy-leveling, judgment-canceling gathering they're having. And it's, it's, it's a representation of the kingdom community, praise God. Beautiful, weird, odd kind of thing. The people who are, are there you wouldn't think would be there, and those who aren't there you think should be there. It's an upside-down kingdom, and it's beautiful for that reason. That's what Jesus is getting at. You'll always be gravitating towards the poor. The poor will always be gravitating towards you, and that's the way it's supposed to be, because of such is the kingdom of God. And um, welcome, welcome the tax collector and the prostitutes and the losers of society in. As, as, as part of your fellowship, because that's why you're here. You are them, and they are you, and this is what the kingdom of God is made of. Praise God. Hallelujah. It's beautiful. All right. Amen. So we're going to transition now to another uh, time of worship. Uh, we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. Um, and um, here's the thing. As we, the communion is a sign of the covenant. It's a reminder of what the covenant's all about. And just chew on these words as we go back into this worship service. Um, let, the, let the covenant, let this, when you take the bread and take the cup, um, let it remind us. I mean, it's all pointing towards the cross. And it's, it's to remind us that on the cross, God doesn't love us because we fit into the right category. You're a this and not a that. No, God's love isn't about categories. It bursts all categories. And just think about this. If they found a rock on the planet that didn't fit into any category of rocks that we know of, it couldn't be categorized, it couldn't be ranked on any kind of hierarchy, it was one of a kind, sui generis. If there was a one of a kind, that would be the most expensive rock on the planet. Uh, The price for that would be astronomical. It's a one of a kind. God loves you like that. You're not part of a category. No, he loves you. He loves you. You are a precious, priceless jewel. That's what the cross communicates. You have unsurpassable worth. You could not have more worth to God than you have by virtue of the fact that he was willing to pay the highest possible price for you. And, and therefore, God's love isn't a hierarchical kind of love. It's not a more or less kind of love. You can't rank it. You can't rank people out of the closer or farther from it. No, God is loves like the rain falls and like the sun shines. It's a love, the love that we're loved with. And this is what I want us to be taken in as we take communion. The love that we're loved with is a love that is always, like God is love. He's just being himself towards us. And he's always perfect love. He's perfect love towards us. He's unsurpassable love towards us. He's unwavering, incomprehensible, unfathomable, absolutely unimprovable love. That's the kind of love that you're loved with right now. And it's a love that is, it has no judgments. Um, it's saying he doesn't give you that on the basis of whether you deserve it or not. In fact, the cross is there because we don't deserve it. We are unworthy. If we were worthy, we wouldn't need the cross. No, this is a love that comes to us apart from judgments, and therefore it comes to us as we are, regardless of what we've done, regardless of the wrongs, regardless of the struggles we currently have. It's given to us up front if we'll just receive it. Uh, and it's, see, it's in receiving this indiscriminating love. Indiscriminate. It doesn't pick and choose based on what you do or what you've done or anything. It just comes to you. And it's as we drink of that deeply, as we ingest it, as we let it define us, that's what changes us to now start getting... He loves us with our faults and failures and unfaithfulness. And in doing that, that's what grows us out of our faults and our failures and our unfaithfulness. Your precious jewel. And he pours on this love so that we may overflow with that same indiscriminate love towards others. And so let this, this, this communion remind us not only of who God is and who we are because of who God is, because in the cross, but also our call. Our call. 
to be loving the same way and thereby inviting those who are hungry and thirsty to come into our midst, the prostitute and the tax collector, because they are us and we are them. And we're all the same. Because there's no ranking system on this thing. As we, we'll start by taking up an offering. Uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord, and we do that not just with our words, but how we steward his resources, and I encourage you to be following his lead on that. Um, and, uh, and imagine who you're singing to, and imagine what we're singing about as we enter this time. Enter into it fully and completely. Uh, and then I'll come up and share some words more about how we'll go about taking communion in a moment. Father, come, baptize us in your love and your spirit, with your indiscriminating love. Communicate the reality that you see us each as an individual jewel and us as a whole as a jewel that has no other, that has no comparison, that has no ranking, is just loved in Jesus' name.